Well, good morning. good morning. Let's go ahead and get started with a, with a word of prayer. Our Father, we do come before you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving you glory and honor and praise that you so rightly deserve. Father, we're thankful for this time when we can come together and look into your scriptures. Pray that you would guide our minds and our hearts as we do so that your spirit would illumine our mind to understand the truth. Father, we would see how um, this passage out of Ezekiel is meant to encourage us and to help us to look forward. Father, you've said many things that you're going to do in the future, and we believe you will. So this morning, we're, we're grateful for the body of Christ and the opportunity to edify one another. Pray that you would use each of us to do that and that you would receive glory by that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So this is week number 37 in our study of eschatology. And we, for you who haven't been here, we started all the way back in Genesis with God calling Abraham, talking about the land. And so if you follow the land through the scriptures, and we did so through Genesis, through Exodus, through um, eventually got to Joshua, went through the whole book of Joshua, and then which leads us uh, a little bit into the kings and then ultimately down to Ezekiel, who has much to say about the land. And, and the consistent theme through all of that is that God keeps bringing the land up. The, the men aren't, and they don't think so much about it, but God continues to reiterate over and over and over again through all the generations of the Israelites about the land and that he's jealous for it and that he will uh, deliver them to be there. And so when you get to Ezekiel, God removes them from the land and as they are captured by Nebuchadnezzar and his troops, they're taken to um, Babylon. It's really the land of the Chaldeans. And that's where they're at when Ezekiel is writing all that he writes. Um, somewhere around 600 B.C. is when he began to write, a little bit after that, actually. Um, and then Jerusalem destroyed. And after Jerusalem is destroyed, um, he begins to write about the Millennial Kingdom. And so as he writes about the Millennial Kingdom, we've seen how that was established. And then ultimately you come to the temple that is in that kingdom. And so that's what we've been going through for the last couple of weeks, um, excruciating details given uh, beginning in chapter 40 about this temple. Um, we've seen uh, Ezekiel being escorted through the temple by an angel, measuring everything there is to measure. All the gates are measured, all the altars are measured, the porches are measured, the windows are measured. Um, everything is measured. Um, so God giving the pattern of what the millennial temple will look like. And so we're kind of in the middle of this. Um, we've seen Ezekiel, like I said, measure the gates. And these gates are, are large and um, very tall, um, going up way into the sky. I believe it was 90 cubits high, so um, very high. And um, there are six of them. There are gates on the north, the south, and the east side, nothing on the west side because there's a building that's built up against 
uh, the wall of the west side. And then there's gates that lead from outside the temple area to the outer court. And then an additional set of gates on the north, south, and east that are identical to those that lead to the outer court that lead to the inner court. And so for last week we saw where Ezekiel goes into the inner court. Uh, he measures um, the porch on the temple. He measures the nave, which is what we would call the sanctuary or the holy place. He measures the holy of holies. He measures the side chambers. The side chambers for the priests go up three stories high. Now, there are three levels of them. Um, and then, so a lot of detail given. Uh, you remember last week that the, uh, on the porches of the gates that lead to the inner court are tables, four tables, two on each side. And those tables are there with, with double hooks so they can strap the animals down as they kill them, preparing them for sacrifice. And so today we'll um, continue to look at some of these things. I want to pick up in Ezekiel 41, uh, down in verse 16. We went through this real fast last week at the very end. So I want to back up a little bit so we can see um, these carvings that are all over the walls of the temple. So beginning in Ezekiel 41 and down in verse 16, let's just read a couple of these verses. The thresholds, the lattice, lattice windows, and the galleries round about their three stories opposite the threshold were paneled with wood all around and from the ground to the windows, but the windows were covered. Over the entrance and to the inner house and on the outside and on the wall all around inside and outside by measurement, it was carved with cherubim and palm trees. And a palm tree was between cherub and cherub, and every cherub had two faces, a man's face toward the palm trees on one side and a young lion's face toward the palm tree on the other side. They were all carved on all, they were carved on all the house all around. From the ground to above the entrance, cherubim and palm trees were carved as well on the wall of the nave. And then the doorposts of the nave have it. And the actual doors that lead into the nave and then the doors that lead into the inner sanctuary. You remember we talked about those. Those are um, double doors that have two panels. So it's really four doors that open up that lead into the sanctuary and into the nave. And the reason for reading all this, you remember the palm trees being carved on the outer gates as they came in. There were, palm, there were no cherub, just palm trees. Well, now as you get to the temple, they have these stone walls. And you remember they're five cubits thick. So they're very thick walls. They're, you know, eight feet thick. <clears throat> but then on those walls, they put paneling. And the reason for the paneling is so they can carve these cherub and so you've got a cherub and a palm tree and a cherub and a palm tree and a cherub and a palm tree and it just goes on for the all the way around the inside and the outside of this temple. And so, you know, what are all these palm trees and cherubs for? Um, well, they, they certainly, because they're on the temple, should point toward worship for God. And we talked about the palm trees, maybe they represent fruitfulness 
in the life of a believer, um, we're not exactly sure. You remember we talked about uh, when Jesus went into Jerusalem for the last time, they laid palms on the ground so he could walk across them in a way to honor him. So I think these palms also have something to do with honoring God. But then you have these cherub. This is the first time we've seen the cherubs. And these are different than the cherubs that Ezekiel saw in the sky that were escorting the Lord. Those had four faces. These have two faces and because they're two-dimensional. You know, the ones that he saw in the sky were four-dimensional because they could move in all four directions without turning. But these guys, I mean, you're on a, you know, paneling. So you're only two-dimensional. So they can only have two faces. And so one of those faces is that of a man and one is of a lion. And uh, MacArthur suggests that maybe what that represents is Jesus' humanity and then his kingship also. Lion being the king of the, of the animals. And so that potentially could be what is being represented here. Um, certainly we know this, that it points toward worship of the Lord because it's in the temple and outside the temple. And that's what this temple is all about, is how are the Israelites during the millennial kingdom supposed to worship their God? And why does this temple exist? For God to be housed and for worship of him. And he'll, he's prescribed and he will continue to prescribe the method of how he is to be worshiped, what is to be done and what is not to be done. And so um, we'll continue to go through those details. But I wanted you to see these carvings because, I mean, you go to all this trouble, right, to cut these stones and bring them, cut them in the quarry, bring them, no chisel or anything being used in the temple itself. So it's quiet as they erect this other than the people grunting to try and lift these huge stones. And you have these walls that are five foot thick and then you panel them. Um, doesn't say what kind of wood they use, but they're all paneled so they can then be carved. And it's not only the temple, the nave, the holy of holies, the inside and the outside, but it's all the chambers that the priests are in also. So as they're in those chambers, they're led toward worship of the Lord. This is what this whole thing is all about. Okay, we go on down in chapter 41. Verse 22 is a description of the altar. And don't get confused here, there are two altars. There's the altar of incense, which is in the holy place, and then there's the altar outside of the temple where they sacrifice the animals. This is the altar of incense, because it's made out of wood, and if it was where they burned the animals, it would burn up. So this is the altar of incense, and you know that because he's describing the inner temple. And so this is the altar of incense in the holy place. And you can see there, he says it's um, three cubits high, which is about five and a half feet. So about my height. And then um, three, um, two cubits long, which is three and a half feet. So it's not huge, but it's where they burn the incense for, again, worship of God. Um, and we'll continue to talk about why they do these sacrifices and incense and all these things. And then in 23 through 26, you get that description of the cherub and the palm trees carved on the doors that lead into the sanctuary and into the Holy of Holies. So um, we just keep on walking through this, trying not to take too much time because we could 
you could spend your life here, and we don't want to do that. So in chapter 42, um, really the first uh, 12 verses, if you read that, you'll wind up very twisted. Okay, it's just hard to follow what he's saying, but basically he's describing that on both sides of the Holy of Holies, there are chambers, and those chambers are for the priests. And they're outside the other chambers that we've looked at, and they're for the priests, and the priests have two main things that they do in those chambers. They're very specific um, for the priests. And again, um, well, well, we just read it. Look in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 42, and he gives what these chambers that he's described in the first 12 verses are for. Then he said to me, the north chambers and the south chambers, which are opposite, are opposite the separate area. They are the holy chambers where the priests who are near to the Lord shall eat the most holy things. There they shall lay the most holy things, the grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering, for the place is holy. When the priests enter, then they shall not go out into the outer court from the sanctuary without laying there their garments in which they minister, for they are holy. They shall put on other garments, then they shall approach that which is for the people. So two purposes for these chambers. It's where the priests eat and where they change clothes. Now, we looked at this last time. The priests are divided into two groups. You have those that are the sons of Zadok and those who are not. The ones who are not the sons of Zadok don't go into the inner court. They minister in the outer court with all the people. You know, someone's got to lead the animals in. Someone's got to keep things organized. Someone's got to guard the gates. Those are all the priests who are not the sons of Zadok. The sons of Zadok are those who go near to the Lord, and they are in the inner court, and they're the ones who minister the altar, the altar of sacrifice, the altar of incense. They go into the holy place. They go into the holy of holies. They're near to the Lord. And so the Lord prescribes that the very clothes they wear cannot be the same clothes that they wear in the outer court. So before they can go into the inner court, they have to go into these chambers and change their clothes into linen garments. And later we'll see this. I think it's down in chapter maybe 44 that they, are, they have to wear a turban around their head. They have to put on clothes that are linen. They can't have anything that binds them such that they would sweat is what the scripture says. So very precise description of what these guys have to wear as they go into the inner court and as they minister to the Lord, as they're in the very presence of God himself, as we'll see in the next chapter. So um, these are only the sons of Zadok. They're the only ones who get to eat the sacrifices. And matter of fact, they must eat the sacrifices. It's prescribed for them to eat them. So um, I believe one of these chambers over in the corner, there's a kitchen for them. You gotta have utensils and that kind of stuff. Someone's gotta be able to clean things. And so that's where the priests do all that, is in these chambers that are prescribed for them. 
And notice it says they're holy. So not just anybody can go into these chambers. Don't know what would happen to them if they did, but they don't. They're just for the sons of Zadok. So, uh, point to ponder too, but Zadok in that whole line was elevated because of Eli right. and his disobedience, the disobedience of his sons, right. who then received the Levitical priesthood, except for the Zedekites, were basically cursed. I mean, they, they were basically. Uh, Disciplined by God, that whole line all the way into the future of this world, all the way to the millennial God, kingdom the here. The picture there is the thing that stokes fear in me is just look at how disobedient we are on so many different levels <laughs> in our worship of God, and yet here's God disciplining this line all the way into the future of yeah, the actually world. opened the earth and took them all into the earth. And, and which is what he's doing here to Ezekiel. This is a vision that Ezekiel sees. It's not a physical temple. It's something that Ezekiel sees. It will be a physical temple, but it's not at this point. And God is being very, very precise because he has a way in which he wants to be worshipped, and he describes the pattern here. And any deviation from that pattern will not be accepted, will not be acceptable in his sight. And, and so in the same way, we have particular ways in which we're to worship in, in this time, this day and time. And it's not just any way we want to, it's the way that's prescribed by the scriptures. And we're to be guided by the scriptures. So you can't just make up your way that you want to worship, right? I think in many ways, even more so, because they were looking towards the one from Genesis 3.15 that was coming. Right. And see him much more clearly. Yeah, much more clearly. Well, and as we looked at last week, and then we had communion, and we talked about it, of uh, Jesus Christ didn't just hang on the cross and give his life, right? He then went into the holy of holies, the true holy of holies that this is a is a copy of, in order to truly take his literal blood and drip it on the altar seat in the heavenlies. I mean, we, we always forget that part. That I don't know when he did that. I don't know if he did it during the three days when he was dead. I don't know if he did it after he ascended to the Father. We're not given that. But we clearly are given that he did do that. That he took his blood and sprinkled it on the altar in the heavenlies. The true throne of God. And which is just astounding. That he would do that so that my sins could be forgiven. So that yours could be forgiven. And without that, there would be no forgiveness. And so the very, very important what the writer of Hebrews gives us there of what Jesus Christ did. And, and in this temple, we don't see Jesus anywhere. Not pictured. The God is pictured there as he comes in his glory in the next chapter. But Jesus is not pictured in this, in this temple. So his throne from which he reigns must be somewhere else, not in this temple. And I, I think it works this way. This is, the temple was for religious worship of God. Jesus Christ on his throne is the political ruler of all the world. Now he clearly is sovereign over it, but yet it is more political 
in that reign, that's why we reign with him, is so that there can be order and that any uprisings can be squelched immediately from a governmental standpoint uh, with God at the head of it. So um, it's not the way that most people picture the millennial kingdom, but it's the way that I see it. You know, we've talked about this. There are many, many unbelievers during the millennial kingdom. Not everybody is saved and, and trusts Jesus as their savior. If they did, then at the end of the millennial period, there'd be no war against Israel. But there is a war against Israel as the nations are deceived by Satan. So there are unbelievers and, and God kills them in that final war after the millennial kingdom that we looked at in chapters 40 and 41. That's not right. 38 and 39, I think that's right too, where we looked at the war. Um, so we've been through all that, no reason to rehash that. But, um, so you see that these chambers, which God goes to great detail to tell us about these chambers. So they're important to him. And they prescribe part of the way he is to be worshipped. You keep on going here down in verses uh, 15 through 20 of chapter 41. And we've looked at these previously, chapter 42, the last five verses. We've looked at these previously, and you probably remember them. When we first came to the temple, we looked, went to look at how big is this temple. And so you have to get all the way to here to the end of the description of the temple to know how big it is. And you remember it's 500 reeds by 500 reeds, which is somewhere a little over a mile on each side. So the temple area itself is a square mile. And it's a perfect square. And then the temple area when you get in, start going through the gates to get into the temple proper, it's probably located right in the middle of that square mile. And again, it is a perfect square. And so um, these are the gates, or the walls, that are way outside. And it says that the purpose of these walls is to separate that which is holy from that which is profane. So as soon as you go through these walls, you're on holy ground. And the temple, you can see it in the distance, it's like half a mile away. And so you keep walking until you get there. Um, my idea is this is probably all uncovered. You know, there are no trees in here. You can see the temple, because that's your purpose, is to walk up to the temple once you go through these walls that are here. So these walls are big. I mean, they're, they're tall, they're thick, um, but they're simply to mark what becomes holy from that which is not. And so square mile, that's too big for the mountain today. So there's gotta be some geographical change, uh, that's right, geographical changes to the earth. It's gotta be flattened and made big enough for the temple to sit on, and it will be. I mean, you can see that clearly in the tribulation. There are earthquakes and uh, mountains fall and valleys rise and there are changes to the earth. And one of those changes will be to provide a place for this temple. So that's God's purpose, one of his purposes in the tribulation is to prepare this land. Don't know when this temple is built, don't know who builds it. That's not given in scripture. Um, so we're not exactly sure. But it will, you know, you, you think about this, well there's gonna be 
some type of altar and worship during the tribulation period. That's clearly spelled out. But it's not this temple. It's not this one. It's, it's some other temple um, that we don't know anything about other than it'll be where the abomination of desolation ultimately takes place, where um, the Antichrist will declare himself to be God above all gods, where he'll do unholy sacrifices, um, which were foreshadowed um, by Antiochus Epiphanes, and we'll eventually get there. As we go through Daniel, we'll see Antiochus in clear colors and, um, and talk about those kind of things that foreshadow what the Antichrist is going to do. Okay. So, um, anyway, very, very large. So then, I told you that these last eight, nine chapters have no events that happen in them, right? There's no activity. It's just description, except for this chapter. And this is where God comes into the temple. It's the only activity that you see in any of this. Everything else is just for description's sake, which is very important when you get to the end of the war and you, you remember that, that introductory passage that after the war that introduces these chapters of description. Other than this, there's no activity, okay? And this is God doing the activity, not men. So um, anyway, we'll keep going. Chapter 43, this is something that never happened in the temple that Zerubbabel built some 60, 70 years after Ezekiel began to write here. Uh, you remember they're in captivity in Babylon for 70 years, and then Cyrus the Persian comes in and defeats the Babylonians, and Cyrus frees the Jews to go back to their homeland if they so desire. Most don't. Most stay in um, that area around Babylon, which is why there used to be so many Jews in Iran. They've, most of them have left now, but that's why there was such a huge population, because they just stayed there, um, which is where the land of the Chaldeans was. But some go back, and Zerubbabel is one of those, and you remember Zerubbabel leads the charge to rebuild the temple. It's a pitiful sight, so pitiful that the priests who saw the old temple weep when they see the new temple because it's not ornate, it's not beautiful, it's not covered with gold, it's not anything like the old temple other than it's the same dimensions as the old temple. So um, they weep uh, and God's presence never came into that temple. You remember in both the sanctuary that Moses built and in the temple that Solomon built, we have the entrance of God into the temple, literally. And then it may do us well to go back to Ezekiel chapter 10, which is where the presence of God left the temple that Solomon built. This is the temple that Nebuchadnezzar tore down. But before he tore it down, you remember the first 30 chapters of Ezekiel are Ezekiel warning the Israelites of what's going to happen to them. And chapter 10 of Ezekiel is a description of what's going on in the temple. This is where Ezekiel digs through the walls of the temple. 
and, and sees all what's going on. There are women in uh, the holy place which would not have been allowed by God. There's abominations happening uh, in there and we don't want to describe what those are. And so it's just a horrid um, abomination before the Lord in, in, in all these chapters, but especially in chapter 10. And in chapter 10, God's glory leaves the temple. And I want us to look at this before we look at him coming back into the other temple, uh, the new temple. So um, Ezekiel 10, the, the first 17 verses of this chapter describe the cherub who are with God. And they look exactly like the cherub who were with God in chapter 1. And if you remember, in chapter 1, uh, Ezekiel is by the river of Chebar. And God appears in, uh, in his throne. And around that throne are the cherub. And the cherubs have four, four faces. And this description of God given in the first three chapters of Ezekiel are the commissioning of Ezekiel by God to do what he's been doing. Okay, and so this is similar to that same picture of where the cherub now come to escort God out of the temple. So the first 13, uh, 16 verses, 17 really, are just the description of those cherub in chapter 10. But then in 18 and 19, let's look at those. Ezekiel 11, 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. And then he leaves. So God leaves, notice, by the east gate. He goes out the east gate of the temple that Solomon built. Okay? And he's gone. And he, he never comes back until this temple in the millennial kingdom. The only presence of God in the temple that Zerubbabel built was Jesus Christ himself walking through the temple turning the tables over taking a whip and driving people out that's the only presence of God in the temple that Zerubbabel built and that Herod expanded so sad sad thing that God leaves and here in chapter 10 he leaves and Remember, this is like, from today, 2,700 years ago that God left that temple. It's somewhere in the early um, 6th century BC, so the 500s, um, that God leaves this temple and never again returns the presence of God to the temple of the Israelites until the Millennial Kingdom. So it's like, it's at least 2,700 years and counting, right? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I see what you're saying, but, but there's a piece of that to think about is he did, which was in Jesus. Right, walk through that temple. Jesus showed up at his temple as 100% man 
and did what he did because of the worship that was going on. Right. Shameful. It's, it's that same theme. Well, yeah, and you see it all the way back at um, why God called, really, Nebuchadnezzar to destroy the temple in Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself is because of the abominations and Jesus Christ doing the same thing, that there's abominations in the temple, and so he drives it out. Just temporarily, 70 years later, of course, that, no, 40 years later, that temple is destroyed by the, you know, everybody says the Romans destroyed it. Not really. The people who destroyed the temple, the Romans tried to keep the temple from being destroyed. The Syrians destroyed the temple. And if you go through, and we will, uh, Dan, uh, and Daniel, and then we'll trace it all the way down, we'll see it's the Syrians who do this, not the, uh, not the Romans. And it's clearly spelled out. I mean, it's not, you have to think a little bit, and you have to do a little bit of research, but it's pretty clear that, uh, yeah, the Romans were there, the cohort of the Romans, but the cohort that was there was from Syria. They were not Roman citizens. There is a few Roman citizens, maybe, we'll look at it in detail, maybe five to 10% of the soldiers who were there were actually Roman citizens. These other guys are just surrogates and, and armies of Rome that came from their native lands to destroy Jerusalem. And they did it because they wanted to. Um, not because of any other reason. They destroyed it because of hatred. And we'll look at all that, I promise. If, we, if the Lord tarries and we live that long, we'll go through Daniel next and we'll see all these things that I keep mentioning to you. Because I think they're there in living color. So the glory of the Lord left by the east gate. Now look in chapter 43 you'll notice that he comes back by the way that he left. And just a, a few verses here, beginning in chapter 43. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when he came to destroy the city, that's the one we just saw, and the visions were like the visions which I saw by the river Chebar, which is chapters one through three, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. So God left to the east, and he comes back into the new temple from the east. So it's important to him. And we'll see this east gate. No one else is allowed to go in through the east gate. The doors are shut and no one can go into it. One person can go on the porch. So that's a very special person. We'll see that in the next couple of chapters. But no one else can go on the porch or go through this gate because it's been shut because it honored the Lord to come back in through the east gate. And you remember, the temple faces to the east. It's on the west wall, it's behind it is the west wall where there's no gate. And then the temple faces to the east and you can't use that gate, so you come in the side gates to the north and the south to get into the temple area. And so very, very special 
that God came through this gate, and it doesn't get closed here, but we'll see it in later chapters that it is closed because it honors God coming back into his temple. Yeah. Yeah, which are the guys who destroyed the other temple. Um, yeah, and you know, that's how you know they're not Romans. Because they do worship the sun. And the Romans didn't worship the sun. They had a god of the sun, but they didn't worship the sun. Well, these guys who destroy the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD worship the sun. They're Syrians. And you can see that clearly spelled out in the scriptures. So uh, we'll talk about that again. But yeah, it very well could be, Mark, that um, you know, it, it, it shows that he reigns over all. Absolutely, absolutely. Not, it's not Daniel, so it might be Isaiah. Yeah, I don't remember specifically. Literally, specific, the Assyria. It's amazing when you finally look at it. <laughs> There's a lot of things in the scripture that are amazing, are there not? I mean, and, and this is a difficult passage that we're going through, without any question, which is why we're trying not to spend too much time, because there's just so much excruciating detail here. But our purpose, and we said this last week, is so that we can see what God is prescribing. This is God's pattern for how he is be, to be worshiped for a thousand years. And it will take place exactly as he says. Okay, we're gonna end here. Um, well, let's read verse five, and you, I just want to, we'll get God into the house. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, verse five, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man stood beside me, that's the angel. He said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the so place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither their nor, nor their kings, by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only the wall between me and them. And they have defiled my holy name by their abominations which they have committed. So I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me and I will dwell among them forever. As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the plan. So he's saying, this is important, Ezekiel, and I want you to tell them. But as you tell them, I think it, it moves for these five verses to present tense. He's saying, Ezekiel, while you're in this land, exiled to the land of the Chaldeans, I want you to tell them all these things that I've told you. Why? So there might be some glimmer of hope because they are out of Israel. Israel is desolate. Jerusalem is destroyed. All the other cities of Israel are destroyed. 
and there's no hope. Well, God gives them this plan and says there is hope. And I'm coming back to the temple. Now, what they didn't know is that it'd be 2,700 years. We have the great privilege of knowing that. But it did give them hope that, there, that God was, had not abandoned them. Sure. And I think this is one of the reasons why the priests weep. Because there's this great hope and we're going to go back and build this great temple and then you got the temple of Zerubbabel which is pitiful. And they weep because this is not what God prescribed. Because God wasn't talking about that temple. He's talking about one in the future. But they didn't know that. How could they know that? Ezekiel didn't know that. Daniel doesn't know that. Zerubbabel doesn't know that when he goes back. Nehemiah doesn't know that when he builds the gates. They all think this is the pattern, but it never happened. And it won't happen until the Millennial Kingdom. Okay, so God is in the temple in the Millennial Kingdom, and it's where he'll dwell forever. And he says, put away your abominations now. He's talking present tense to them. Okay, thanks for your time. We'll pick up here next week.